Just as God brought light out of darkness at creation in Genesis 1, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So too, he will bring light out of darkness at the end of the tribulation. For in Matthew 24, we read, Of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The blinding, magnificent light of the Lord Jesus Christ's glory will break through the darkness when he returns to set up his kingdom of righteousness for 1,000 years. For ever since Adam's fall, Satan's kingdom of darkness has been shrouding the earth with sin, sickness, sadness, and death. Hello, I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. Welcome to this study that concludes the Campaign of Armageddon video series. This will be the glorious return of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This culminating event will usher in the final stage in God's plan for this planet's history, the age that will precede the triune God's eternal kingdom on a new earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true light of the world, will rule as king with a righteous rod of iron until the last enemy, death, has been destroyed. What a glorious time this will be! Now, let us briefly review the events on earth that precede Christ's return. Events that will bring the world and humanity to full ripeness for the wickedness and ready for Christ's harvesting sickle of judgment. Seven years earlier, at the start of the tribulation, we learn that humanity will rejoice to see the Antichrist rise to power as he leads the world in man's last attempt to complete Satan's goal of a single world government and religion. We saw that the clock of the tribulation will begin when he grants Israel permission to offer sacrifices at the temple site in Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. When he breaks the agreement three and a half years later, sacrifice will be ended and he will desecrate the temple by going into the Holy of Holies and proclaiming himself to be God. Heeding the Lord's warning and command, given in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, true Jewish believers in Israel will flee into the wilderness to a place prepared for them by God in Edom. That command is, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, that's a reference to the wilderness of Edom. As we explained earlier videos, the wilderness or the land of the southeast of Israel is called Edom in Hebrew and Indumea in Greek. In that land are the cities of Basra and the fortress city of Petra, where I believe the obedient remnant of Israel will locate. We learn that during the next three and a half years, the Antichrist will launch an all-out attempt to destroy every Jewish person on earth and all Gentile believers throughout the world. 
Recall now that this campaign will begin when the armies of the world gathered at Armageddon to prepare for an assault against the nation of Israel. But as success appears imminent, God will destroy the Antichrist capital city of Babylon that represents all the evil religions and governments of the world since Babel. The Antichrist will react to God attacking his city by attacking and capturing God's capital city of Jerusalem. With this victory, Satan will prompt the Antichrist to divide his armies and send part of it to destroy the believing remnant of the Jews in the ancient fortress city of Petra. Now, in our last video, we learned that this believing Jewish remnant that God now is calling Israel will fulfill God the Father's conditions for sending the Messiah to deliver them and set up his kingdom. This includes national confession of sin, repentance, and a cry for God to send the Messiah. In response to Israel's repentance and plea, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ will begin at last as God the Father commands his Son to return. For the martyr Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21 that God the Father shall send Jesus Christ, which was preached unto you, whom the heaven must even until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Notice that God connects Christ's return with creation, indicating that the coming kingdom has been planned from the creation of the world. This connection reminds us that God will restore the earthly kingdom that Satan challenged and usurped in the Garden of Eden when the first Adam sinned. God will destroy Satan's kingdom and power through his sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Now, God promised this in the first prophecy of the Bible found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee, that's Satan, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It, now Jesus Christ is her seed, it shall bruise or destroy the power of Satan's head, and thou shalt bruise at the cross his heel. Satan's final loss of authority over earth's kingdom will begin with Christ's second coming. Now, contrary to what is often taught about his return, it will include a number of steps before he majestically descends to the Mount of Olives, as the angels promised the disciples when Christ ascended, and that was recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. These progressive steps will display God the Father and God the Son's power, glory, and majesty to all peoples of the earth. Now, the first step will bring judgment upon those opposing God's people. For Isaiah tells us in chapter 34 and verses 4 and 5, And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, that's Edom, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Hundreds of years later, 
the Apostle John wrote of this as well in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14. And he says, The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And speaking further of Christ's return, we read in chapter 19, verse 11 through 15, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Notice that for tribulation believers on the earth, this grand entrance will bring deliverance and great joy. But for the unbeliever, it will bring the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, in God's mercy and grace, his wrath has been withheld from the Garden of Eden to this future day. At last it will be released in all its fullness upon the ungodly of the earth. If we are to properly picture Christ's return, we need to look at Acts chapter 1, where in verse 3 we read, To whom also he, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Notice carefully the Lord's primary teaching to his apostles during the forty days between his resurrection and his ascension concerned the future kingdom of God upon the earth. At the end of these forty days of teaching, as our Lord ascended to heaven, the angels proclaimed in verse 11, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, shall so come in like manner. That means to be in the coming back in the same way or fashion as ye have seen him go into heaven. This short phrase, in like manner, is the key to recognizing the characteristics of his return that Matthew described as the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This return will follow the dramatic, attention-getting announcement in the heavens and the universe, where it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, when the earth will shake, the sun be darkened, the moon not shine, and stars fall. That's in Matthew 24, verse 29. Because Christ's return will be in like manner to his departure of Acts chapter 1, verses 10-11, we are able to make a list of the characteristics of his second coming. Firstly, he will come personally. This same Jesus, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the very same Jesus that you saw go up will come back. Secondly, he will descend gradually 
in verses 9 and 10 we read, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Now, here's a little bit of grammar. Be patient. This is the present participle. That means it's an ongoing event. So we could really translate this as saying, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he was going up, suggesting gradual, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Thirdly, his descent will be visible to all in like manner as you have seen him go. This, this is unlike the catching of the church. That'll be invisible to the world at the rapture. John gives a New Testament witness also to this event in Revelation 1, verse 7. He says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, says John, Amen. Fourthly, he will come from heaven, from the right hand of the Father's throne, at the time designated by the Father in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where we read, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he, now that's the Father, shall send Jesus Christ, which was preached unto you. Fifthly, he will come gloriously. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he shall reward every man according to his works. Sixthly, he will come surrounded with the clouds of heaven. To understand what the clouds of heaven represent, we need to consider Matthew 24 and verse 30, where the clouds is plural. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now over in Luke 21 verse 27, the parallel passage, we see that cloud is singular. Luke tells us, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The explanation for this seeming incongruity between the two gospel writers becomes clear when we consider the three ways that this word cloud is to be understood within the context of the Bible passages where they appear. Over in Revelation 19 verse 14, it describes the armies of heaven that will return with Jesus while riding upon white horses and clothed in fine white linen. The whiteness of these armies will be cloud-like. For we read, And the armies which were in heaven followed upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now the verses just prior to this verse relate to the bride of Christ that consists of all church-age believers prior to the tribulation. Therefore, verse 14 must refer to the church. Thus the church, the bride of Christ, represents one of the clouds. In verses 14 and 15 of Jude, he supports this concept. We read, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, 
prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Now notice that Revelation 19 verse 14 says armies, indicating there will be more than one army with Christ. As we look for another army in Scripture, we see that the Lord's name, the Lord of hosts, is used to designate the pre-incarnate, that's before his birth, Christ, in the Old Testament, where it's found over 261 times. In Joshua chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we see that the pre-incarnate Christ is called the captain of the host. And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? And notice, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Our word host in English is the Hebrew word satsva, meaning army. Thus the Lord of the army is equated with Lord of hosts. This army is identified clearly in Psalm 148, verse 2, where we read, Praise ye him, all his angels, praise ye him, all his hosts, or using the Hebrew, all his army. It equates angels to army. Matthew indicates the angelic army also will accompany Jesus Christ at his return. For in chapter 16, verse 27, we read, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he shall reward every man according to his works. And again, in chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. The white-clothed angelic army of the Lord also will join the church saints' army at the coming with the Lord. Now, at this point, we need to note very carefully that these armies will not engage in battle, for it is the Lord alone who will defeat his foes. We learn this back in Isaiah chapter 63 and verses 1 through 4. You see, a, a series of questions are asked through Isaiah of the Lord. He is specifically speaking of when he comes back. So the first question is, who is that that cometh from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? The answer is, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness mighty to save. The second question, wherefore or why art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Now that wine fat is a wine vat. The answer given to the question is, By the coming one, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, that's none participating in the battle, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them, that's the enemies, in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come.
John tells us in Revelation 19, verse 21, that the Antichrist's army will be destroyed by the Lord alone. For we read, And the remnant, that's of the Antichrist army, were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Recognizing that the focus of the battle is the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to consider the application for the singular term cloud that was found in the Luke account in the Gospels. I believe that this singular cloud by Luke represents the Shekinah glory that will radiate from our Lord as he returns. You see, in the scriptures, the Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of God's presence. It's called the Kavod Adonai, the glory of God or the glory of the Lord. It appears always as a brightness, a brilliance, a splendor. And the Hebrew root of the word means dwelling and always signifies God's dwelling presence with his people. Thus, Luke used this singular cloud to make it very clear that the armies of saints and angels will not be alone. For Jesus Christ's dwelling presence will be with them, leading them. He alone will fight the battle with the sword of his mouth, his word alone. As we saw earlier in the prophecy of Matthew 24, verses 29-30, a foreboding darkness will shroud the earth at the close of the tribulation, and out of the darkness shall appear the sign, singular, of the Son of Man in heaven. What is this sign? Although we are not told specifically what it will be, we do know that God will fulfill this prophecy by giving a sign to the Jewish people that they will understand and recognize. Now, because it will be very dark at this time, it seems reasonable to me that the sign will be the sudden appearance of the Shekinah glory breaking through the darkness and illuminating the earth below in dazzling light. The Shekinah glory departed now from Israel's temple just before the nation was taken into captivity in Babylon and has been gone from the nation ever since. In Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, the prophet was given a vision of God's Shekinah glory as it departed from the temple and ascended from the Mount of Olives at that time. For the glory represented God's dwelling presence that was leaving or departing from Israel. Amazingly, centuries later, the Lord Jesus Christ departed from the same location and in the same manner 40 days after his resurrection. Ezekiel 11, though, verses 22 and 23, they're speaking of a time when the glory's first departure occurred. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, that's Mount Olivet, which is on the east side of the city. But now we move to Ezekiel chapter 43. Here Ezekiel writes of the Lord's second coming and his return to the temple after the tribulation. 
And in four, verses 4 and 5 we read, And the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, came into the house by way of the gate, the eastern gate, whose prospect is toward the east. That's to Mount Olivet. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. We see here that the Lord's departing Shekinah glory, way back before the captivity, is the same glory that will return in like manner. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This sign will clearly reveal to the Jewish people and all the unbelieving people, the Gentile nations, that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God, Israel's Messiah and Savior for all those who trust in him for forgiveness of their sins. All those who have rejected Christ during this time will look up to this awesome sign with fear, knowing that God's wrath is about to come upon the unsaved of the earth. Thus, the clouds that accompany Christ as he returns are the Shekinah glory, the army of the angelic host, and the army of church-age saints. How dazzlingly bright and glorious it will be. Now, having seen a scriptural overview of Christ's return, let us now look deeper into the sequential steps leading to our Lord's triumphal entry through Jerusalem's eastern gate and then into the temple where he will sit down on David's throne and rule the earth in righteousness for a thousand years. As we have already seen, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ will begin when the Father issues the command for his Son to leave the Father's right hand and proceed to the earth to reclaim the earthly kingdom as its rightful heir. Although he gained this right at the cross, he has delayed reclaiming the kingdom until his bride, the church, has been made complete and prepared for her role to rule and reign with him. The Holy Spirit has graciously been wooing and sanctifying her through the Word of God. Now the Bema, or judgment seat of Christ, will have completed her preparation. Then she will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Her crowns, or band-like diadems of reward, will be cast at the Lord's feet, then placed on His head. They represent her loving and obedient service in her Christian walk sometimes at great sacrifice, and are given to her bridegroom whose sacrifice for her was far greater. Now the bride and the host of angels mount their white steeds. Suddenly the heavens will open and our Lord will begin his descent with his bride and angelic host following close behind as the first step of his return begins. We read in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 14. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns or diadems. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture 
dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, you well may wonder how all the tribes or peoples of the earth will be able to witness this glorious event. Some speculate that our modern technology devices provide the answer. <laughs> I don't think so. Matthew gives us a clue to the Lord's plan when he wrote of this event in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 27, where we read, As the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then in verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It is my belief, I emphasize that this is my own suggestion. It is my belief the answer is found in the sign that is the Shekinah glory or awesome brightness of the Lord. Perhaps Christ's gradual descent will span a 24-hour period as the earth rotates on its axis beneath his radiant procession. The Shekinah glory, like a sunrise from the east, will break through the portentous darkness and light up the earth below, enabling every individual on the planet to look up and to see the Lord approaching with his armies. You may recall from our last video that the Antichrist will have sent half of his army to destroy the Jewish people in Petra. The other half of his army is to destroy the Jewish people in Jerusalem at this time. After the earth has made one complete rotation, the Lord will now be over the enemy encampment at Basra and the sheepfold of Petra. He will appear just after the repentant nation cried out to him for him to come as their Messiah. So the first step of the Lord's rule will be finished when the earth completes its 24-hour rotation that will reveal to all peoples of the earth the sign of his coming and the impending judgment. Uh, now, attempting to correctly piece the events of the Lord's return together chronologically leaves much room for debate, and I readily acknowledge this. I am confident that the events I am relating here are biblically supportable, but the exact manner, timing of them can only be conjectured from hints given in the scripture. Many believe that the first event of the Lord's return will be when he comes down to the Mount of Olives, splits it in two, and goes into Jerusalem and sits on David's throne. I suggest that he will do this after he has destroyed the Antichrist's army with the sword of his mouth from the air. I believe that the second step of Christ's return will be to deliver his obedient nation in Petra, for the Antichrist's army will be assembling in nearby Basra, preparing to attack and destroy God's people over in Petra. You may wonder why I suggest that he will first go to Basra instead of Jerusalem. I'll give you three possible reasons. The first reason is that the nation of Israel in Petra will have repented for their national sin. They have called out to God to deliver them by sending the Messiah. Therefore, he would come to those who had repented. 
The second reason has to do with the history of the land of Edom, where both Basra and Petra are located. As we recall the history of Israel, we must remember the nation began when God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. God also promised to bless him and make his name great. He promised to bless all the families of the earth through him and to bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed Abraham. That's given in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The fulfillment of this promise began when Abraham's son Isaac was born. It continued through Isaac's son Esau, the older of his twin sons. However, because Esau was a carnal man and did not value his birthright as elder son, he sold it to his brother Jacob for a pot of stew. Therefore, Jacob became the heir to God's promises through Abraham. Full of remorse, but unrepentant, Esau begins to hate Jacob. Esau eventually married Ishmael's daughter, which furthered his departure from God's will and blessing. This began the ongoing animosity between Esau's descendants and Jacob's. Now, if you're unfamiliar with these events, I suggest you view my video, Israel, the Key to Unlocking History, on my website, that's congdenministries.org. I suggest you view this video to better understand the history of Jacob and Esau and why the animosity developed. Throughout Israel's history, the nation has faced many foes, but none of their enemies ever equaled the ferocity of Esau's descendants, the Edomites. At the birth of our Lord, it was King Herod, who was part Edomite, that sought to destroy the baby Jesus by ordering the death of all children under two years of age in Bethlehem. History records for us the relentlessness of Edom that is not matched by any other enemy of Israel. Prophet after prophet in the Old Testament would cry to God to avenge the evils of Edom against Israel. Therefore, we must assume that many who join the Antichrist's army ready to attack Petra will be descendants of the Edomites. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, where he writes, For my sword shall be bathed, that means prepared in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, that's the land of Edom, and upon the people of my curse, to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, and it was made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Indumia. That's the land of the Edomites. Moses also spoke of this day in his prophecy that he gave actually at Mount Sinai, after God had delivered Israel from Egypt and their enemies. He wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. Now that's an Aryan Edom. 
And he came with 10,000 of his saints from his right hand. What a fiery law for them. That's the Edomites. How appropriate that Christ would begin to carry out God's wrath on the nations with Israel's historic enemy. A third reason for Christ going to Petra, first, is to prevent the Jews in Jerusalem from boasting themselves against those who obediently fled to Petra. In chapter 12, verse 7 of Zechariah, the prophet refers to them as the tents of Judah. That's the people of Israel or Judah who are living in temporary dwellings or tents in Petra. For we read, The Lord also shall save, that is to deliver, the tents of Judah. That's the temporary dwelling of Israel's obedient remnant at Petra. The Lord also shall save first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Judah, again, the obedient believers in Petra. As we already have considered, the Lord alone will wage the battle with the sword of his mouth. That's his word. How awesomely glorious it will be for those who return with him to witness it. If you've received the Lord as your Savior, you'll see the amazing power of his spoken word begin to bring justice to earth at last when the half of the Antichrist army is destroyed there at Basra. Having delivered his nation at Petra, the Lord then will begin the third step of his return by turning to his capital city, Jerusalem. Still in the air, he will move westward, followed by church-age saints, his angelic hosts, and the believing Jewish remnant from Petra. Perhaps, perhaps, his host of angelic angels will gather up the people at Petra and carry them through the air to witness Jerusalem's deliverance. Zechariah describes this next step in chapter 12, verse 8. He writes, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. As the Lord and his armies approach, the Antichrist's remaining army at Jerusalem will turn to meet the Lord's army in the valley of Jehoshaphat. As we read in Joel chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, Let the heathen be wakened, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God judges, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get ye down, for the press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Based on those verses, the battle will not take place in the immediate area surrounding Jerusalem, but rather in a valley God calls the Valley of Decision. Now, if we look at the maps in the back of our Bibles, we won't find this valley. Nor, for that matter, is it often discussed in most commentaries. To see where it is located, we need to take a brief look back into Israel's history during the days of King Jehoshaphat.
There are two possible locations for the final defeat of the Antichrist and his armies. Of the two, I believe the Valley of Baraka is the most likely location. That valley was named by King Jehoshaphat in the 9th century BC. It's located south of Bethlehem on the road from Engedi to Jerusalem. That's approximately 11 miles from Jerusalem. In Israel's history, King Jehoshaphat fought with the nation's enemies in this valley. And I believe that this battle of the past prefigures the last battle the Lord himself will wage to reclaim his city of Jerusalem. In King Jehoshaphat's time, as recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 30, there was a coalition of Moabites, Amorites, and you guessed it, Edomites, gathered in this valley in preparation for their assault on Jerusalem. As their enemies were approaching, the Jewish inhabitants in Jerusalem, they gathered in fear. They prayed to God for deliverance. The Lord answered their prayer, and it's recorded in verses 15 and 16, where it said, He said, Hearken ye all Judah, ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Notice the similarity to Joel's prophecy. A great multitude will come against Israel, but Israel will not fight the battle. God will do it for them. He did it by stirring up and confusing the enemy, causing them to fight and wind up killing each other. In three days following the battle, King Jehoshaphat's army gathered the spoil of their enemy, and it tells us on the fourth day they gathered to praise and bless the Lord. He did it, remember, so they gathered to praise and bless the Lord. Verse 26 tells us, On the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Barakah unto this day. The battlefield was memorialized by the naming of the valley Barakah, which means valley of blessing. Jehoshaphat's jubilant army marched back to Jerusalem with great singing, praising, and blowing of trumpets. When we consider this historic event to be a preview of the Lord's ultimate victory over the Antichrist and his armies, we gain a better understanding of the final great conflict. Perhaps those who accompany him at his second coming will rejoice, sing, and blow trumpets of praise for his marvelous victory as well. Zechariah described how Christ will defeat the Antichrist and his armies in chapter 14 and verse 12 when he wrote, And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. The Apostle John, also describing this in Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden down without the city, outside of the city, and blood came out of the winepress, 
even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. Revelation 19 tells us that what will happen to the Antichrist and his prophet and all who gathered to wage war against Christ and his saints. Beginning in verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him, that's Christ, that sat upon his horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Paul also wrote about this event in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the Spirit, that's the breath of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Arnold Frichtenbaum, a Bible teacher, summarized the end of the Antichrist in this way, and I quote, the one who has claimed to be God, the one who has been able to perform all kinds of miracles, signs, and wonders, the one who exercised all the authority of Satan as he ruled the world, will quickly be dispensed with by the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. Now also at this time, Satan will be bound and then cast into the bottomless pit that will be sealed so that he will be unable to influence the nations and peoples for 1,000 years. That's during the millennium. For we read this in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, and now just in case you're not sure who this is, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit. My next video about life in the millennium will explain God's reasons for not casting Satan into the lake of fire along with the Antichrist and his armies at that point. But for now, it's enough to know that he will be out of the picture, unable to control and influence peoples and nations for a thousand years. Then he will be cast into the lake of fire. Once the great campaign of Armageddon ends, the long-awaited time for the Lord Jesus Christ to descend to the Mount of Olives will arrive. Up until this point in time, the Lord will have been waging war with the Antichrist and his armies from the air. At last, the time will come for him to descend to the earth's surface. As Christ always has done, he keeps his word and fulfills prophecy. An angel had told Christ's disciples that this same Jesus would return from heaven in the same manner as they had seen him go. Zechariah vividly describes this coming event in chapter 14, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and the west. 
Now don't miss the word stand in this verse. For this is the same word Ezekiel used when he was writing about the Shekinah glory of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, as the Shekinah glory left the temple before the Babylonian captivity. The word stand here means to hesitate, to delay with the suggestion of a great emotion. Back in Ezekiel, just as the Shekinah glory sadly hesitated when compelled to lead God's beloved people because of their sin just before the captivity, Jesus Christ may pause in reflection when he stands on the mount overlooking Jerusalem at his glorious return. Recall how he in the past lamented over Jerusalem just prior to his Olivet Discourse and his imminent crucifixion. That's recorded in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, which we read, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until or till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He also may reflect on Palm Sunday, that day so long ago when he triumphantly rode into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a lowly colt and presented himself as Israel's King and Messiah amid jubilation and cries of Hosanna. Sadly, Less than one week later, the leadership and people turned on him. They called for him to be crucified. Now, just try to imagine what we will witness when this event takes place before our very eyes, if you are part of his bride, the church. What joy will fill our hearts when we see our crowned and glorified Savior hover over the Mount of Olives, clothed in majesty and blazing glory, he will dismount his white charger onto the mount. The moment his feet touch the mount, it will split in half toward the north and south, forming a valley leading to Jerusalem's original eastern gate that has been buried beneath centuries of rubble. He will walk through the valley, pass through the open gate, and proceed to the temple site. He will ascend David's throne and begin his righteous rule of the earth for a thousand years, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Joel tells us again in chapter 3, verse 16, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy. Then shall no strangers pass through her any more. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. All the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. All who are righteous through the blood of the reigning Savior will rejoice after praying so long for his kingdom to come. And all of creation that now groans will be restored into perfect balance. 
the people of Israel, who long have suffered persecution and rejection, will find their Messiah and King to be a righteous judge and refuge for them. The Bride of Christ, the Church-Age Saints, those from Pentecost to the Rapture, will rule and reign with Him. As the Great Tribulation and the Campaign of Armageddon come to a close, God's plan of history will move into the thousand-year millennial earthly kingdom age. What a glorious, wonderful time that will be. I hope this series has been helpful to you, has given you a greater appreciation of God's power, glory, and majesty. For perhaps these prophecies may soon come to pass. Please join us in our next video as we continue to study God's Word regarding events and life in the millennium. Now may our Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you either here or in the air.